0: We're going to be in Colossians chapter 4. We're back to our study of Colossians. There are only uh, a couple more weeks as we look into this book and we begin to wrap up uh, this great journey through one of Paul's epistles. I hope you've enjoyed it. I think it's been a blast to read through it together as a church and to come in here and to worship and to learn and to just be connected within our teaching and in our reading. It's, it's an exciting thing. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 4 beginning in verse 2. The notes uh, that are online are available on an app. They're going to give you the full outline this morning. And it's a really simple outline. It's easy to follow. Um, it goes almost point by point, again, within the text. And it gives you a lot of great application that you can follow. Again, really simple. The reason I'm reminding you that that is there is we may not get through all of that this morning. That's, that's always an encouraging thing when the, the, the guy preaching says to you, I have so much to say we may not get through it all, uh, so I'm not, I, I, I'm not even pretending. We, we, we may not get through all of it. The reason being is I want to take some time and define some key terms as we walk through Colossians chapter 4. We are a society that really loves slogans. We like slogans, but the problem with slogans is we can kind of make them mean anything we want them to mean. They, they're kind of just relative sometimes in their nature. We at Tri-Cities, for example, we use slogans too. They're catchy. They help us identify certain things. So we say things like uh, an abiding relationship with Christ. We talk about that all the time. We talk about, for example, being an army, not an audience. But the real tension happens when we begin to define what those terms mean. The expectation associated with being an army and not an audience. And that's when I think uh, we begin to be stretched a little bit. And we're going to do some of that this morning. And I also want to confess something to you. I'm often incredibly convicted and burdened as I study to preach. As I realize and look in the mirror, man, that is a word for me. I don't know that I've ever felt that more than preparing for this sermon. I've felt incredibly convicted as I read through what Paul is going to write in these few verses. And I want to go ahead and share something with you. This is one of those sermons that is hard. It's hard because it's so incredibly challenging. And I want to remind you as we dive into this and as we are challenged by God's Word that those of us who through faith in Jesus, have been set apart into the family of God, we have victory. We have victory. But our victory does not separate us from conviction and the discipline of God as He sanctifies us, as He makes us into the image of His Son, which He has set us apart to be. And we're going to wrestle with that tension I believe this morning. So, Colossians chapter 2, or chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This text really has two emphasis that we're going to see one is a call to be devoted to prayer, and another to be devoted to the proclamation of the gospel. These are not two separate things. They are not oil and water. They fade together. Prayer and proclamation. I believe both of these things in this charge will speak to a weakness, not just of the church, but even specifically our church. I think they may even speak to our own sinfulness and our brokenness. As we pursue the Christian life, they are convicting. And as I looked through the text, I found five instructions for Tri-Cities Baptist Church and I want to walk us through them as best we can. The first challenge, the first instruction is to be devoted to prayer. Now I read from the ESV, that's the version that I use. It's where I, where I stay and it says to continue steadfastly. That's uh, a translation from one Greek word. It's just one word in the Greek. It's not two. And that's why, for example, the King James Version, you're going to see something that says continue. And the New American Standard or the NIV, it's going to say devote. And it'll go on to say devote yourself. But the word simply means that. It means to persevere, to pursue, to be devoted, to put forth devotion. It's used the exact same way in Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Paul says to be devoted to prayer. Same phrase. And see, devotion to prayer, listen, is a pillar of the Christian life. And it always has been. If we go back to Acts chapter 2, the church is just getting started. It's an amazing thing. They're growing and they're coming together and they're forming the first church. It's an incredible time. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we realize what they're doing. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. For us, by the way, that's recorded in Scripture. They devoted themselves to Scripture. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the fellowship. To the coming together as the body of believers. To the breaking of bread. That's the communion. That's our ordinances. And then it says, and the prayers. They devoted themselves to prayer. The early church, it was part of their devotion. It was something they pursued and sought out. This is true of their leaders as well. In Acts chapter 6, if you remember, there were just all kinds of issues within the early church, and it was growing, and there were needs, and they had appointed deacons to serve the body. And the elders and the apostles and the leaders of the church said in verse 4 of chapter 6, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, to the proclamation of the gospel. Devotion to prayer is a pillar of the Christian life. It is today. It always has been. Always has been. But before we move on and we begin to talk more about prayer and other parts of this text, I want us to define devotion. I want us to see that devotion is a command. It's a command. I think that's a hard truth and a hard command for today's American Christian. I think it's incredibly difficult for us. Now listen, we have devotion. There's no doubt about it. We have devotion. Our devotion is usually just very individualistic. And very centered on ourselves. Like one of the things that amazed me. Did you know that 1.65 billion people have a Facebook account? 1.65 billion. That's roughly one out of every five people on the planet have a Facebook account. Who taught these people how to use Facebook? It blows my mind. Because I know some people. I won't point you out, but you still refer to things like the email, right? You know who you are. You get a virus like every other week. You you know, you're always opening those attachments, right? That's you. And yet, you have figured out how to use Facebook. Blows my mind. I had someone, they were at a, a former church of mine, asked to be my friend not too long ago. He's like 96 years old. He's getting on Facebook. Do you know why? Because pictures of their grandkids and their great-grandkids are on Facebook. They have an interest. And their interest creates enough devotion in them to drive them to figure it out. And they don't just say, well, that's hard. No, they try. They work. There's a devotion. There's a pursuit. I'll give you another example. The one that blows my mind the most is Starbucks. See, I don't drink coffee. I I, I just don't. I I don't like anything that's hot. I don't know why you would want to burn your tongue. It just makes no sense to me. Some people, though, enjoy it, and they go to Starbucks where they're going to pay like twenty dollars for like a cup of coffee, but it's not a cup of coffee. Listen, it's something like a triple venti half sweet with caramel foam, hold them like mayonnaise. I don't even know. It's like its own language. And see, I, I work with a bunch of coffee snobs, and I sit there, and I watch them talk, and it's like they just are speaking some foreign language. I'm like, how did you learn to say all that? And I think about those poor people. They can't just call them, you know, like, serve them. They're like baristas or something different. i think about these poor people, and how do you learn what all this stuff means? It's incredible to me. You know why? Because they like coffee. So they learn the language. You can't even just order medium. There's like a word for that. I don't know what it is, but there's a word for it, right? But there's devotion. The devotion is just to an individual interest. So we can be devoted, but it's very individualistic. So I want to chase this with us, and it's going to take a little while, and it's going to, I'm going to ask you to really think with me. Uh, I don't think of myself as a great communicator, and I think this is hard. We're going to talk about uh, the things that we are blind to within our culture. And especially if you're in this room and you're younger than about 35 years old, I really want you to listen to me. The first thing I want us to understand is that devotion demands discipline. Devotion demands discipline. And discipline comes from conviction. Discipline comes from conviction. Listen, a conviction, here's the idea is when we hold a notion as an absolute truth greater than its cost responsibility. Let me say that just a simpler way. There is a cost to holding a belief. I believe I am married for better or worse. And so if my wife were to be paralyzed in a car wreck today, and from the neck down had no more movement, For the rest of my life, I live with my wife. I cherish my wife. I serve my wife. Do you know what I don't do? I don't leave my wife because no longer did she meet what I expected her to meet. I don't just trade her in for a different one that's not as worse off. Watch. There's a responsibility associated to my belief that I am married for better or worse. As a parent, I believe that I'm responsible to lead my child toward wisdom. That means there's going to be times where I'm going to disappoint my child, where they are going to want something that I clearly do not find to be wise. She's going to come back at 12 years old and say, man, this wonderful, charming prince of a man who's like 19 asked me out on a date and I like him and her dad's going to say no and there's a great chance she will be disappointed in me there is a cost associated with a belief what about as a Christian I am an ambassador called to proclaim the gospel And that means that sometimes I'm going to be in awkward conversations. That sometimes I'm going to face persecution. There is a cost to a belief. And I have a belief that is greater than its cost. See, that's conviction. That's conviction. That I stand on a truth that is bigger than the circumstances around it. And yet our culture, listen, is rejecting absolute truth and replacing it with personal relativism. This has been happening, and it's continuing, and it's increasing. And whether we know it or not, it has shaped the way we think. And there is a culture, listen, that does not get that, that doesn't understand that, that thinks, for example, that my gender is not a physical reality, it's not an absolute truth, that it's a choice, that I just get to choose. And our temptation as the church... Our temptation as the church is to focus on such extremes. To think for a minute that these things like choosing a bathroom just happen randomly within themselves. Listen, church, they don't happen randomly. These things have happened because as a culture, we've become so soft with truth. We've been unwilling to stand with conviction behind things. To proclaim things. And it's easy to look out at those extremes that might apply to, you know, a tenth of a 1% kind of a thing. But the reality is, it has affected our worldview as well. It has affected us. We have embraced such a relative, personal view of truth. And listen, as a result, we are losing convictions. We are losing conviction. And if we lose convictions, we lose disciplines. And if we lose disciplines, we will lose devotion. And if we lose devotion, we will live disobedient to the calling God has given us as Christians. This is a reality. It is a truth. And one result of that is we are perverting the doctrine of grace. Young people, listen to me. We are perverting the doctrine of grace to excuse and to cover up our disobedience. We are perverting it. No longer is it a reality in light of absolutes that compels us. Instead, it is viewed as a relative freedom that excuses and entitles us. Paul addresses this in Romans 6. He says, man, you can't just go on sinning. Anyone who would suggest to us that we are off-step in our faith because we don't gather for weekly worship, because we don't give faithfully, because we don't share the gospel on a regular basis, because we value our emotions and our feelings more than truth and wisdom is revealed to us, that our fathers are more interested in teaching their kids how to swing a bat than to study their Bible, that their moms are more interested in their social status than praying and praying with Diligence that their grandparents are more focused on returning to a time of their preference of their day rather than imparting a wisdom that transcends the style of music in their church or the style of jeans a teenager is wearing. That our pastors, hello, that our pastors are more focused on entertaining than proclaiming and more focused on growing a crowd than discipling and more focused on the idea of success than faithfulness. That when somebody dares suggest that we are out of step in the faith because we do not devote ourselves to prayer, we label them a radical zealot. We label them a fanatic, an extremist. Listen, we label them illegal. Because they dare think that somehow our convictions should lead to discipline. What's my point? My point is scripture doesn't teach us this. We don't think that because that's biblical. We think that because we have been impacted by this lesson view of truth, this cultural worldview that is relative. The Bible clearly calls us to good works, to holy actions, to acts of worship. Listen, we do so because our culture struggles with conviction. We say things like, it hurts my feelings. It makes me feel discouraged. Danny, you're making me feel inadequate. And we think that anyone who makes me feel this way must be an heir and they must be a legalist. Listen, because I know Jesus gave me victory. So I shouldn't feel bad or be burdened. It's just not true we do this because we've been conditioned by our culture to recognize the feeling of conviction as defeating and as admonishment as unkind and unloving we struggle to have a healthy burden to realize that i am living that i'm not living out what i believe to be true we struggle with this 20 years ago in the church, we would regularly hear communicated that conviction was a sign of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We never hear that today. Why? Because we define conviction to be at odds with grace. It is not true. We are the children who are rebelling against our parents, rebelling against the discipline of our parents, shouting, you're mean, you're hurting me, if you really loved me. You don't care about me. We are rejecting the idea that temporary pain associated with discipline is loving and gracious. Perhaps this is why so many of our kids are so unruly and so ignorant of the Scriptures is because they are void of discipline. And I don't just mean punishment. Listen, I don't mean just punishment. I mean correction and admonishment and accountability. They don't see it in our lives. Not the less is it given to them? Discipline, listen, whether self-imposed on ourselves with accountability and a pursuit and a longing, or from a loving authority, it is gracious and commanded in Scripture. Nowhere is that better explained than in Hebrews chapter 12. In light of all that I just said, listen, beginning in verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The sons who are your These are people in the faith. It is for discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. Pause, catch that. Discipline is for our good. Good. Our good, that we may share in his holiness, that he may sanctify us, grow us. Verse 11, listen, this is so important. For the moment, all, all means all, and that's all all means. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. For the moment, All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. In other words, be encouraged because the absence, listen, listen. Pain, the temporary pain, of discipline, does not rob you of the victory that you have in Christ Jesus. It is the work of Him growing you and making you into what He has declared you to be. It is for our good. So when we feel conviction, when we feel the tension of realizing we are not yet like Christ, that is a good thing. It is for our good. Is it painful? Sure it is painful. But it is for our good. It is for our good. Discipline brings that temporary pain. It brings conviction, the realization that we fall short. It is painful, but the purpose is not to defeat us or to rob us of our victory or our freedom. In the same way that sore muscles do not rob the workout of its benefit. The purpose is to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The purpose is that we might grow. So we must set our emotions according to this truth. According to this truth. And stop excusing ourselves on false emotions. Stop labeling legalism as anything that calls for work or effort or devotion. Legalism is a motive. It is not an emotion or an action. Why so much time here? Why would I spend the majority of our time to unpack this? Because listen, there is a generation, a generation that is sinfully struggling to be devoted. Because they saw such great legalism before them. And they have, if you will, thrown the baby and the bathwater out together. We must stand up for absolute truths. The revelation of God. Because our faith without works is dead. Paul acknowledges this a chapter before in what we've read here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if you're in Jesus. Here's what he says. Seek. Seek. Look for it. Pursue it. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2. Set your minds... Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. The application here is a simple one. Church, we are called throughout the New Testament to be devoted, to pursue godliness, to pursue Christ Jesus. We recognize that our life will be faced with conviction. We are called to discipline. And here in chapter 4 of Colossians, we are commanded that we be devoted to prayer. To prayer. When we talk about what prayer is, I think of the really, really famous illustration. Um, Dale Moody is a a famous preacher and he was in Scotland in the 1800s and he came up to a bunch of children in a, a grammar school and he had the opportunity to speak to them. And he thought he would begin with just a rhetorical question. What is prayer? But you don't ask rhetorical questions to uh, children because they answer those questions. And so in the room, you know, dozens of hands immediately shot up. And so Moody decided he would just call on one of the children and he called on one and the child answered, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of his spirit with confession Of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. It's amazing what kids can grasp and learn if we have the discipline to teach them, by the way. If you haven't looked at our family discipleship plan, here's a plug get involved and begin to become strategic and intentional. If you're using something else, that's fine. I don't have to be legalistic over the standard, but be intentional to invest in our children and teach them things. See, that answer wasn't just a made-up answer. That was question number 98 from the Westminster Catechism. Moody responded back and said, Son, be thankful that you were born in Scotland. That's a great, great answer to what prayer is. Yes, it is the communication of our desires. It's, it's us asking. It's there. It's our desires. But it also is our confession and our thanksgiving. Paul makes his second point and our second point to tri this morning. The second instruction I want you to see is that we are to be disciplined to pray with thanksgiving. Pray with thanksgiving. This isn't a new thing that he's introducing in chapter 4. If you've been paying attention throughout Colossians and reading along, he said this every chapter. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, listen, abounding in thanksgiving. Chapter 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Our prayers are a place of worship, a place of giving thanks. And So often if you're like me, you're self-centered and you're broken in your sin nature and the temptation is to make prayer about yourself. That prayer becomes self-centered, that it becomes the laundry list of all of our inward focuses. Thanksgiving reminds us that prayer is first an act of worship. That we pray because we recognize there is a being that is in control of all things. That has authority over all of creation. If we didn't think that, why pray to that being? See, we pray because we recognize He is God. Our prayers are very active worship. And so, Paul writes, be watchful. In other words, be careful, be intentional, be strategic. To work thanksgiving into your constant praying so we are to be thankful as we pray third we are to be disciplined to pray for opportunities to proclaim the gospel paul goes on verse 3 says at the same time pray also for us that god may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of christ on account which i am in prison listen paul says pray that god would open a door For us to share the gospel, a door for the word. Now notice, Paul is in prison. He's not praying for deliverance. He's praying for opportunity. When I read that and I think about it, I'm just going to tell you, that's really convicting for me. Most of my self-centered prayers are for my deliverance. They're for my comfort. They're not for the mission. Here, Paul's primary focus is on the mission and not on his comfort. He says, to declare. To declare. Prayer has led us to the point of proclamation. We are now praying that God would open up opportunities that we may speak, that we may live out the gospel in front of others. Fourth, be disciplined to live for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Verse 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Church, we proclaim the gospel in both word and deed. Listen, never just one. Never just one. We don't get just to say it and not live it out, and we don't get to just live it out and never speak it. We proclaim the gospel in both word and deed. And our time is limited. And Paul's prayer is that he would be able to prioritize the gospel, that we would make the best use of our time. It is hard. This this thought hit me, and this this was one of the things that was incredibly convicting for me. It is hard for me to imagine Paul visiting us and describing the American Christian as devoted. It's hard for me to get my mind around that Paul would leave the jail cell, would leave all the persecution, would leave such a devoted life and come here and look at us and see our busy lives with so much leisure and so much freedom and conclude, yes, guys, this is the devotion I was talking about. That's hard for me to get my mind around. Number five, be disciplined to speak the gospel. Disciplined to speak the gospel. Going back to verse four, he said, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now back down to verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Again, we proclaim the gospel in both word and deed and here we are talking about in word we must always be ready for an active season we must always be ready at any moment to speak and to proclaim the gospel as an ambassador of Jesus this is our mission and it should be part of the core component of our prayer One of the things that I am most proud to be part and associated with this local body is that twice a year we begin basically every semester and we have a service and we dedicate that service to praying that God would give us boldness to carry the gospel out to those who are unbelieving in our life. That we end every service praying God give us boldness to proclaim the gospel. This is a biblical prayer. It's a biblical prayer. We must always be ready to weave the gospel into our speech. This is our mission. When I ask the team to come on up, and as they do, church, we've been, I think, challenged by The words here in Colossians chapter 4, and we've been instructed to pray and to proclaim, and I cannot think of a greater response than to call us to pray together. Tonight at our family meeting, we will gather as a church for one hour and we will pray. And I know everybody's going to be busy and everybody's going to have things going on, it's summer. And I'm not guilting you, listen, I promise, I'm not guilting you into a programmatic application of prayer. Promise. But there is a responsibility that we have to pray together. If you can make it, come pray with us. Pray with us. But right now, as a church, I'm going to ask you to do something, whether right there where you're seated or as many of you as can, I'm going to ask you just to come forward. Come down front. Get on your knees before God, beside one another. And as one church, in one voice, let us pray to God. Let us thank Him for the victory that we have through His Son, who has shown us grace upon grace, who has made the discipline worthwhile. Who is working in us sanctification, who is growing us more into the very image of His Son. That we would pray with great passion and great devotion that He would continue to grow in us and mold us into the image of His Son, and that He would raise up opportunities for you and for me and for this church to proclaim the gospel boldly in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our community and literally around the world. I can think of no greater way to respond in application to this word than to ask you to pray together with me this morning. And so what I'm gonna ask you to do right now is if you're able to come forward Make this a time of prayer. If you can't, don't feel bad. Stay right where you're seated. Pray. And I'm going to give us a season and a time as they play softly behind us for us to pray together in one voice. And after I've given us some time, church, I'll close us in prayer, and we're going to go back to our seats, and we're going to continue to worship in an attitude of prayer. At this time, would you come? Would you join me? In church would you pray with me?